When I first started this present history multimedia project, one of the main things I wanted to do, and something that was very high up on my list of priorities, was to speak to Amanda Hale. While writing my undergraduate dissertation about this topic, her book, Mad Hatter, provided interesting insights into the character and personality of many of the members of the League of Christian Reformers, in particular, James Larratt Battersby, the so-called Mad Hatter, and Amanda's father. So I shot her an email, intrigued as to what her response would be to me doing a whole multimedia project on the League of Christian Reformers, and especially wanting to do an episode specifically about her father. She responded quickly and seemed interested in the project and excited to talk about her book. I was elated, it has to be said. We soon organised a meeting. And as we sat down to record, the sun was glaring through the blinds in my office and snow was falling outside the windows of hers. She was in Canada. I was in England. And yet what should have been an obstacle that made an interview like this impossible is now hardly a barrier at all. We pressed record, and for the next hour or so we discussed James Battersby, his life, career, beliefs, and eventual demise. We also discussed Amanda, her process in writing, balancing fact and fiction, her research into her father, and how this journey of discovery became more than just research for a book to her, but something that challenged and impacted her to the core. It was a fascinating conversation, and I can't wait for you to hear it. So, sit back, get comfortable, and enjoy my conversation with Amanda Hale, best-selling author and the daughter of James Larratt Battersby, the Mad Hatter. So, Amanda, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's a real pleasure and honour to have you here. Well, thank you for reaching out to me. I was really pleased to hear from you. It's always great to hear from somebody who's discovered Mad Hatter and uh, has taken the trouble to read it and enjoy it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I thoroughly enjoyed it, in fact. Um, would you mind giving us a little bit of your background, telling us a little bit about yourself, how you got into writing, and ultimately what drew you to write the story of your father? Sure, Zach, I'd be happy to give some background. Um, I was born in England at the tail end of World War II. So I was born into that um, very dreary post-war era of Britain, um, which probably, you well, you didn't experience, obviously, <laughs> but um, it seemed normal to me. Whatever uh, era of the world you're born into, it just, you, you take it for granted that everybody's like that. So it was very dreary and depressing. It was bomb sites and rationing and, you know, everybody that had expected this triumphant ending and victory, but actually um, people were just very beaten down. So um, that that was my foundation and conditioning. And my father was absent because he had been interned during the war. And that caused so much trouble in the family that he and my mother after many efforts to um, reconcile, um, split up. So he was gone. So it was a single mother family and I was the youngest of four. Um, and then, um, you know, I, I grew up there and went to drama school and 
did various things. And then I emigrated to Canada when I was 23 in 1968. And um, so my life has been in Canada since then. And I went to university as a mature student at the end of my 20s. And that's when I started to write because I encountered some very good writing, creative writing teachers there. Um, but I was writing for theater, doing creative writing drama, got a master's degree in that. And um, then I've, you know, I've worked in Canada at many things. And during the 1980s, I, I moved from Montreal to Toronto and worked with um, women in theater. Um, I, I've always been in the arts, so I've never made any money, <laughs> um, but managed to scrape by. And um, so I've worked in theater and the visual arts. And uh, that, I think that was the major career part of my life was the 1980s in Toronto. There was a lot going on there and a lot of solidarity work with, with refugees coming from Latin America and so on. And uh, then I eventually moved out west here to Hornby Island. And in the meantime, I, um, I, I gave up writing for a while and I was doing visual arts and making my living at that. And then in 1996, I started to write a novel. Um, and that was my first novel, Sounding the Blood, set on Haida Gwaii, the Queen Charlotte Islands, at a whaling station in 1915. And I had great success with that. And so since then, I've been writing novels. But I've always known in the back of my mind that I had to write something about my father, you know, who, who I didn't really know. So... Um, so that's been the trajectory of my life. And I'm, you know, I've, I've got nine books published now. Some are poetry and some are nonfiction. I, I do a lot of creative nonfiction and uh, four novels and two collections of short fictions set in Cuba. I've traveled a lot too. That's always been a big part of my life until the last few years. Um, so I'm hoping that uh, I'll be able to start traveling again. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You mentioned there your father wanting to write about him and his story, but the fact that you didn't really know him all too well. Um, would you be able to give us a, a brief outline of your father's life and story? Yes. Well, I didn't actually know him at all. I, I, I know that I encountered him because I've got a photo of him holding me when I look like I'm maybe, you know, eight. Um, 18 months old or so, or two, but I, I don't actually have memories of him, um, <clears throat> probably because of, of the kind of unspoken censorship in our household. He was really a taboo. We were not, we didn't speak about him and, you know, nobody was encouraged to, um, to see him while he was still alive or anything like that. But um, what, I, I mean, of course, I've researched about him and I did know um, his side, I know his side of the family quite well. He was born in 1910, um, and uh, he was born into a family of hat manufacturers, which is why my book is called Mad Hatter, because it was the Battersby Hat Factory. It was Battersby's and Locks and a few others, but I think those were the better known ones. And the hat factory has now become a museum in Stockport, where the, the factory used to be. Um, so he, you know, he was born into this sort of um, middle-class, well-to-do family, quite privileged, and went to boarding school and excelled in uh, many things, um, mostly music and sports. He was a great sportsman, you know, and he he was into being competitive and winning uh, the football cup and the cricket cup and things like that. Um, and 
he was it seemed like he was a, a person who was very well socialized and had many friends you know was part of a group he was always very much of a social person and uh then he uh what happened was that um when oswald mosley uh started the british union of fascists party was just called british union i think at the beginning my father um i think you know like many people of his kind of background was rather politically naive I don't know if you've seen that film, um, Remains of the Day, from a novel by Kazuo Ishiguro. And, uh, you know, it's about it's it's a marvelous film. When I first saw it, it was devastating to me because I sensed, you know, that this was um, very much on topic for what was in the background of my life. Um, anyway, he was he was politically naive, you know, and didn't didn't understand uh very much about the suffering of working class people, but that on a school trip, he was taken to the East End of London and was absolutely shocked to see the way that some people lived. And I think that this sort of opened up for him, um, you know, a proclivity towards um, joining something like the British Union, because he was very sincere in trying to improve the lives of people. I mean, not to make excuses for how his life turned out, but I, you know, I, I think, my best educated guess at what happened, it, it was this, you know, so he was drawn to that. He liked groups, he excelled in leadership. He became the leader of the Stockport branch of British Union. Um, and of course, Mosley was very much looked down upon by people in Britain because um, this was even before the war started, but as it was brewing, um, my grandfather um, on my father's side uh, and the people at the factory gave him an ultimatum um, because he had joined the family business, uh, you know, more or less because he had to as the only son. He actually wanted to be a concert pianist, but he joined the family business and they gave him an ultimatum that he either dropped his membership in British Union or he would be out of the factory. So he continued with British Union, but, you know, he was really passionate about these politics. And um, he had the reputation of being then a follower. But in fact, he was quite a leader. But, you know, he did revere Mosley and everything that he stood for at the time, which actually made a lot of sense before war was declared. You know, within the cauldron of war, a lot of things become uh, uh, unacceptable. And there's a lot of restrictions, um, as we're seeing now, actually. <laughs> Although we're not actually at war, but Ukraine is yeah. um, and Russia. But anyway. Um, those sort of times. So uh, after that, he um, his life changed completely because then war was declared and he, he was in June of 1940, he was interned along with many other people, not just the Mosleyites, uh, but um, all the German Jews who'd had the foresight to take refuge in Britain. You know all this, of course, but your listeners may not that um, they were interned as, you know, as foreign, uh, uh, foreign, as immigrants, you know, uh, possible um, threats to national security. There was, when Churchill became prime minister, um, he, he um, brought in um, rule, uh, regulation 18B, which allowed them, they allowed the government to intern people without um, any recourse to um, legal means of protest. So my father remained interned for, um, I think for th about three years, two or three years. Um, so um, uh, this was a terrible thing for my mother who was in no way equipped 
to be a single mother for four children because, well, I was the fourth one, born in 1944. Um, but my father, by that time, I, I believe, uh, according to my research and family stories, you know, he was just really um, on a different trajectory than he, you know, he, the, the internment had been very hard on him and he had been interrogated for three weeks at Latchmere House. Do you know about Latchmere? Yeah. You've probably read about that because you're an expert in the field. Anyway, <laughs> I, I actually tracked it down. Part of my research was to actually go to Latchmere House and try and get in there, but it was in the process of being um, converted by Her Majesty's prisons. But, you know, I did I did um, go there and do my best to get in. But, I, you know, I believe it was a terrible place and people were, in, were taken there and uh, more or less psychologically tortured. There was this man, Captain Robin uh, Stevens, who was called Tinai Stevens, and he prided himself on being able to break a man and he would turn spies. Um, and my father, of course, actually had, you know, he was not a person of interest, really, but they, they thought he might be because of his membership. And I, I think that, that probably broke him uh, uh, psychologically. Uh, you know, he probably just had a very bad breakdown, but um, there was much less understanding of, of um, human emotions and psychology in those days. So he was seen to be dangerous, which he wasn't. Uh, but anyway, that, you know, that's um, that's pretty much his life, you know, and he, he was he had the reputation before all this of being a real gentleman and, um, you know, somebody who was very kind and um, thoughtful about other people and uh, my gra my grandparents I knew and um, his mother my grandmother um, you know lived to be in her 90s so I got quite a lot of clues from knowing her and what she was like you know and the the sort of Victorian style control of those days so I think um, you know some of that uh, gave me some clues about about what he was like but you know then I didn't know because I didn't actually um, have access to him because he committed suicide, as did many of the um, the ex-internees. He committed suicide when I was about 11. It was my first term at boarding school. But at the time, it meant nothing to me because, you know, I didn't know the man. But I remember my mother coming to boarding school and telling me and my sister, and she was crying. And that, that upset me because, you know, I said, well, why are you crying? You, you hated him. She always, uh, when she did speak of him, she spoke in a very angry and negative way. But clearly she loved him, but was just uh, uh, hurt so much by it that she never quite got over it. Wow. Mm. Yeah, no, all of that is fascinating. And during his time being interned in Peveril, he met Thomas St. Barb Baker, Arthur Schneider, W.G. Barlow, and ended up getting involved in what would become the League of Christian Reformers. How large of a role did these people, did the League play in your research, in your understanding of your father's life and what you found out about him? Yes, well, I had always known of Baker because my mother spoke of Baker again in a very angry uh, way. Um, she just called him Baker. And, um, you know, so I, I knew of, of his his friendship with my father and his influence on him. My mother's my mother's take was that, you know, he'd been a really bad influence on my father. And, um, <clears throat> of course, I did research on Baker because there's quite a 
a bit, not a lot, but there's quite a bit online. And interestingly, since I'm in Canada, um, Baker had a brother who, um, who lived in Canada who was much revered um, as the tree man. He was a, a, a forestry conservationist, uh, someone who'd taken a different path. But uh, Thomas St. Bart Baker, um, I believe, well, he had been in the First World War and I think had been quite damaged by it, as had Mosley, you know, that whole generation, they'd seen the cream of their, of, of, of the young men of their generation, um, either very, very badly wounded or killed. And so um, obviously they were, they were for appeasement and they did not want to be involved in another war. And Baker spoke often, apparently about the First World War, you know, and what a horrible time he'd had. And But he he seems to have been, from my research, um, you know, a rather um, strange character. He, um, I know that he preyed upon my father financially. Um, I think he was somewhat of a charlatan. And in fact, when I did, I went and did, I've done lots of research in Britain. Um, and one, one of my trips, I went to the National Archives uh, near Kew Gardens, and there I was able to um, see some letters from the commandant of the um, of the Peveril camp where my father was on the Isle of Man. And one of them was about my father and about, you know, the fact that he was a very good man and that Baker was really a bad influence on him and that he that my father should be released so that he wouldn't be under the influence of this man. And my father was, in fact, released from internment. Um, but they kept Baker until the very end because he was preying upon anybody who appeared to have deep pockets. Um, but I, um, my father um, continued his alliance with Baker. He did everything he could to get him out of internment and because they'd had this plan together um, for, for Kingdom House, the League of Christian Reformers, and to get a, a house, which they did in Petworth and named it Kingdom House. Because what had happened was my father was brought up, you know, just with a regular sort of religious observance, going to church on Sunday and so on, nothing fanatical. But then um, Baker got him in the Peveril camp doing these um, lectures with him on different topics about the Bible. And my father being somewhat compromised, I guess, you know, with having had a breakdown, um, started to link religion and politics, you know, in a very unhealthy way. And as you know, he ended up, uh, you know, sort of revering Hitler, who was dead by then, you know, as the second coming almost, and that Hitler had been sent here to, you know, to, 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 to work for God with his plan. So it all got very badly misconstrued by my father, but he was passionate about this um, League of Christian Reformers. From what I've read, I've, you know, I've read a lot about Baker and their time at, um, at Kingdom House and with, uh, you mentioned Arthur Schneider and um, W.G. Barlow, who also had a lot of money. He was the racing car driver. And I believe he and my father were the major funders for this uh, League of Christian Reformers. And then there was Schneider and his sisters, you know, who were kind of working there and keeping the house going. Um, but those were all sort of background characters for what I, you know, what I finally uh, wrote about in Mad Hatter. <laughs> but um, certainly St. Bar Baker was uh, a, a major character there. So I've got scenes with him and my father, you know, doing their um, kind of off the wall <laughs> lectures and um, these uh, 
demonstrations of uh, laying on the hands and healing and so on, because uh, Baker had his little son there, who he said was somebody who could do do healing by laying on hands. So um, I uh, again in my research, I I went to uh, I, I went to Petworth. Um, I I um, somebody started writing to me by email from. England, who actually revered my father and someone who's a, a bit of an archivist, I don't know if you know him, Robert Best. And he ended up being a great help to me. His politics, of course, are very different than mine, but he was extremely generous because he had this whole archive of papers about my father. And it was through him that I, I discovered that there was um, a half sibling, which then, you know, we finally, from a newspaper cutting, uh, where my father was taken to court for support of an infant in 1953, and the name of the mother, an Irish woman, was given. So I was able to uh, track down uh, my half-sister, Anne, who lives in New Zealand, and from that discovered three more half-siblings, but two of them already deceased. But anyway, that's a, a sidetrack. Um, Robert Best had written to me, and he happened to live fairly near to Petworth. So I went over to England, you know, to do lots of research. And in the process, I met Robert, and we went together with another friend of mine, Steve, who's a historian from Canada. And we went to what used to be Kingdom House, and a very, very hospitable man lives there with his family. And he invited us in, you know, and he showed me around. He was so open and generous and shared with me, you know, what he knew about the history of that place, because some, uh, you know, quite a lot of um, things had gotten into the newspapers that happened there with uh, um, conflicts, you know, with the local community. So um, uh, it, it was ultimately a failure because they, they failed to attract people there. They thought they would attract people from all over the world. My father, after the war, he went to South Africa trying to drum up support for for this, you know, and for his whole philosophy. He went to Australia. There's quite a bit in the um, archives of the Australian newspapers about him. Um, he was banned from going back to South Africa because he, you know, he, he, he was not afraid to speak out about his allegiance to, at that point, to Hitler, which, you know, that he didn't start that way at all. It was the, pro the process of all this that kind of drove him drove him out of his mind in a way, or we would call it today PTSD. So a sad story. And, you know, my family, I think justifiably, was very angry with the government for what they did. Of course, you know, you can understand it when you, when you read about the war and you think of it as a, a present day thing and people being so afraid. But there were many people like my father who were very badly damaged and ended up committing suicide or you know, being shunned by everybody uh, because they were mistakenly held and accused. Mm -hmm. Yeah, indeed, indeed. Well, something you mentioned there was uh, his upbringing in the Anglican tradition, the Anglican church uh, tradition. And one of the most interesting scenes in the book for me was uh, when he attends an Anglican church service um, with some rather explosive results. He, he has this outburst against uh, the priest. Um, was this a real event that you recounted in the book or was this more of a, a creative moment? Well, um, the, yeah, it's an interesting sort of fine line here because, you know, my, my, what I excel in as a writer is creative nonfiction. And, um, you know, this 
this book is a fiction. I decided to write it as a fiction. But of course, it's very much um, rooted in my childhood memory, you know, which, as you know, childhood memory is it's what it's what stays with you. And it's really vivid. Um, and uh, I and then a lot of family stories. Um, so everything got mixed up. And I, uh, there was definitely a story that my father, um, when he came out of internment, you know, he he went into the local cafe because we lived in. Woodford, which is in Cheshire, between two villages, Poynton and Bramhall. And there's a scene in the book where he goes into a cafe in, in Bramhall. But in fact, he'd gone into one in Poynton, uh, you know, and was trying to, he was always trying to be heard by people, as you would say today, um, and to give his message. And, uh, and in this cafe, he stood up and went, Heil Hitler, you know, so that was a family story, which was like, this was how terrible your father was. So I don't know if I was ever told of um, a church incident, but I, you know, I have both in the book. I have a church incident where I involve the children, which makes it quite poignant. And it also gives um, an opportunity for, for a speech um, outing, you know, the, the, the whole Christian, the whole community of, of, you know, supposedly religious spiritual people across the world, because, you know, we talk about war crimes, but war is a crime and the church has had to support it, I suppose, or what they certainly haven't spoken out against it. And right now here in Canada, we have our First Nations people who've been discovering, um, you know, massive childhood graves at all the residential schools. They, they went over to Italy to see the Pope, you know, to try and get an apology. And, um, you know, the whole thing is just so... So dis, uh, it's so unsatisfying because he apologized for those few people. But of course, as we know, the whole Catholic Church is completely corrupt and it's one of the wealthiest institutions in the world. So anyway, that's my rant. <laughs> but yeah, so there's a lot of incidents in the book which are you know, somewhat based on a real incident. But with creative nonfiction, you know, you have the liberty to, um, uh, you know, to uh, change the information to accentuate your main uh, back, you know, the backbone of the story. So that, you know, that's really a definition of creative nonfiction. Not everything has to be absolute truth, but it's rooted in, in some uh, deeper truth or an emotional truth, say. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And this, this creative nonfiction, the balancing of fact and fiction in your writing is definitely something that I'd like to, to come back to mm. and revisit and, and maybe discuss with you a bit later. But it's interesting with this scene in my own research, I found that uh, James Battersby wrote a letter to the Nelson leader in 1945 that expresses many of the sentiments that you had your Battersby character in the book express uh, in a very fervent uh, manner shall we say um, and I've got it in front of me so I'll just read it quickly uh, Battersby wrote the organized churches given a message of salvation nearly 2,000 years ago in the Redeemer Jesus Christ have denied God by their historical rejection of that message and by their alliance with mammon nowhere was mammon more entrenched than in the church and I just think it's fascinating that uh, the sentiments that you had your Battersby character Christopher express in the book during that outburst is is almost exactly what Battersby felt and what he was trying to get across in this letter to the Nelson leader in 1945. Mm. 
Yes, well, that is interesting. I don't think I have seen that actual quote that you just uh, read, but I, it reminded me that um, uh, I have some of his writings because he 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 published or self-published, you know, some small books um, and pamphlets. You know, he would write about his journeys that he made to proselytize. Um, oh my goodness, the snow is really coming down now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, the one, the one book that I mean, a lot of the books are, you know, a lot of religious rants, which didn't interest me. But the one book that I have found invaluable was a little book um, in hardcover called "The Bishop Said Amen." Have you seen that book, Zach? Yeah, you yeah. have. Okay, well, that book helped me enormously because in it, he, you know, he gave in great detail things that did interest me, like when he was first in prison. Um, in uh, before he was uh, interned at the camp, he went to um, a prison uh, near near Liverpool and uh, various other camps before he actually got to the Isle of Man. And he described in great detail his cell, you know, and his his being checked in there because you know a, a detective just came to the house and said, "Come with me." And he packed a little suitcase and thought he was going away for a couple of nights, but um, you know, three years later, he was home. Uh, so he describes all that, and I was able to um, paraphrase his descriptions um, on many things. And you know, it was it was more his descriptions than his actual thoughts that were interesting to me. Um, and at a certain point, you know, I realized, you know, I've had all my life, I've, or you know, once I became an adolescent with that kind of um, quest for identity, that's when I started to miss my father. Before that, he was uh, nothing to me. Uh, but having had that all my life and missing him and wanting desperately to find out who was he, um, then I, um, you know, I realized I'm collaborating with him. You know, it's like a posthumous collaboration. And also for my brother, because um, my brother was um, asthmatic and a chain smoker all his life, and he died of lung cancer at 61. So, you know, somehow my father and him was very identified in my life because he, you know, I did, of course, talk to my brother a lot about my father. And um, then there's a little note that Cynthia in the book finds at the end when she goes to clear out uh, Christopher's flat and she finds this little fragment. Well, that's some poetry that my brother wrote. Um, and so, you know, I, it was important to me to have the words or, you know, at least the paraphrased words of these two absent men in my life, you know, who are both so damaged. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Present History podcast and the fifth podcast episode in our Hitler's Kingdom Come multimedia project. This was actually only half the conversation that Amanda Hale and I had. And in the second half, we discuss her writing process, this balance of fact and fiction, and how her research, her journey of investigation became a lot more than just a research project for her, but something that shook her to the very core. You definitely do not want to miss this, and it will be coming out very, very soon. So stay tuned. In the meantime, you can check out Amanda Hale at amandahale.com and you can purchase your own copy of Mad Hatter in the link in the description or the podcast notes, depending on where you're listening. Make sure to check out our website at presenthistory.co.uk where you can find out more information about the whole project 
and follow us on Instagram, TikTok, subscribe on YouTube, and we'll see you next time on the Present History Podcast. Thank you.